Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. In a moment, Roberta Carlson is going to share her beautiful story with you. Um, And I hope this is a good example. Many of you, we'd love to video part of your story, a miracle or how you came to Jesus. So just see how encouraging this is when you see it. And and we'd love to, if you'd give us the chance to do that with you too. Uh, We've been looking at the way Jesus treated people and seeing the beauty of Jesus in this series. And so far we've seen him touch and heal a leper who nobody would have touched and uh, invite an uneducated fisherman to be his follower like no rabbi ever would have and let a, t- a prostitute touch his feet um, and forgive her many sins, forgive the sins of a paralytic, and then heal him. Now, all of these people would have been considered nobodies, just not important, not just part of the rabble, um, the dregs of society, some of them. And it shows us that no matter how unimportant we may feel we are, Jesus doesn't feel that way. And he wants us in his family. He loves us and wants us to experience that. But what about... The successful, prosperous people. Does Jesus love them less or more? Do they tend to love him less or more? As you listen to Roberta, I encourage you to note who she was with and what she was thinking when she started seeking. I was put into foster care when I was three years old and my brother was four. We were removed from our home by social services due to neglect and uh, placed with a foster family. We both grew up, my brother and I, with a lot of criticism, a lot of um, anger in the household, and not a lot of love. My brother, in fact, said he never heard my parents say, I love you to him. When we left in high school, I was very fortunate. I got a, a scholarship to college. And then I was um, hired by Pan American World Airways, which was very exciting. It was an international airline, and I had grown up looking at National Geographic, and it was going to take me to all of those places that I had wanted to go. When I was around 33, I started dating a man who was a shipping magnate, a multimillionaire. And we went to a party at the United Nations Plaza Apartments, a penthouse apartment. At the party was a group of very wealthy uh, young models, actresses, um, trust fund babies, and other industrialists who'd made a lot of money by their early 30s. And as I sat at that party as the only poor person uh, who had never thought of myself as poor, by the way, I've never uh, aspired to have a lot of money, I looked around and I thought, when one achieves this, when one is at this age, at this young age, late 20s, early 30s, and has everything that the world tells us we want, I thought there's got to be something bigger. There has to be a higher purpose to life than this. And I want to know what it is. And what the, the exact thought that went through my mind was, I want to know what truth is. There's a higher truth, and I want to know what that truth is. And that started me on my quest. I happen to know somebody whose aunt was the chief gardener at the ashram in Pune, India, where the Rajneesh was teaching. And I went to Pune for a month and um, did Sufi dancing and sat in on lectures and took part in all the craziness that was going on there at that time. 
and it, I was sitting on the roof of a building doing uh, my meditation, listening to this lovely Indian music with the breeze wafting through my hair, and very comfortable and peaceful, and I heard this voice next to me say, this is not truth. And although I should have been surprised because there was nobody sitting next to me that this voice spoke to me, for some reason it was a familiar voice, and my mind said back to that voice, yes, I know this is not truth. This man is going to die. He may have some profound things to say, but he is just like I am, a sinner, and uh, imperfect, and will die at the same time everybody else does at the end of his life. So there has to be another truth besides this. During this time, I had gone into management and was returning from management to being a flight attendant. And right at that cusp of that time, I had to testify in federal court against the union that I was going to be a part of. And it uh, brought the wrath of the union, the flight, union of flight attendants, against me. And uh, people spoke to me in a way that I had never been spoken to before, a lot of profanity. Uh, they refused to work with me. Um, a co-worker's car was painted red because they thought it was mine. One evening coming back from, from Tokyo, a woman sat next to me on the plane. I worked the upper deck of the 747 because it's, nobody would work with me on the lower deck. And she asked me where I got my strength from to deal with all the hatred that was coming towards me on these flights. And I said, well, you just do what you have to do. You draw it from within yourself. And she said to me, I couldn't do it. She said, if I weren't a born-again Christian and if I didn't have my faith and know Jesus was with me, I couldn't do it. And I said, well, what is a born-again Christian? I had already discounted Christianity from my upbringing. And I was curious what her response was going to be. She talked about what a loving, how a loving parent behaves towards a child when they're Christians. And she talked about what a marriage should be like it is like once you become a Christian and it was so different from anything I had experienced or seen it made me yearn to learn more and to know where she was coming from I started attending the church and attending Bible studies I drove two hours every Sunday and every Wednesday I became a born-again Christian there and was baptized into the faith and uh, I have never looked back doesn't mean life is always easy but I know that no matter how hard things get, God promises that he is always with me. I, I know that to be true, and I know that there is no other option in this life. Um, I believe the beauty of Jesus is the fact that he will never leave you or forsake you. He will always love you. If you think of him as the best friend that you can imagine, who will never betray you, who will never turn their back on you, who is always on your side, who is your best supporter and is always rooting for you, and who has great compassion when you fall. That to me is the beauty of Jesus. Would you please open an app or a Bible to Mark chapter 10? probably noticed that Roberta was with some successful young wealthy people when she decided to look for truth. And our narrative today is about a successful young wealthy person. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and work powerfully now, that you would get beyond 
all of our walls and resistance, um, that we would walk towards you, not away. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start at verse 17 in Mark 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as we read on, we're going to find out that this guy um, is rich. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told he's young. In the Gospel of Luke, that he's a ruler, he's an authority, he's in charge of something. So that's why this story is called, down through history, the story of the rich young ruler. Okay, so that's where you want to, what you remember for the title of that. Now he's on his knees imploring Jesus to tell him the truth. In the ancient world, the minute somebody walked in the room, you knew whether or not they were wealthy by their clothes. Everybody in the crowd, all of the disciples, they know this guy is wealthy just by the way he dresses. He's upper class. And you also knew that it never paid if you were lower class to offend someone in the upper class. They expected to be respected and obeyed. They did not return that respect for the lower classes and slaves in general. I mean, it was only a few hundred years ago in England where the law was that if an upper-class person was walking along the sidewalk and a lower-class person was coming the other way, by law, the lower-class person, person had to step off of the sidewalk into the street, which often had horse manure and other stuff, and kind of go like that, kind of a, a sign of humility toward them, and you could get in a lot of trouble if you didn't do it. We don't realize today how much things have changed. So we don't see the drama and the discomfort that's kind of going on in this situation with the disciples, with this rich young ruler. Now, two Sundays ago, Simon the Pharisee was really uncomfortable and offended when a prostitute somehow got into his house and was fawning all over Jesus' feet. But today, the disciples are probably uncomfortable as a wealthy ruler is groveling at Jesus' feet. Remember, Jesus is a carpenter or a stonemason. He's lower class. Upper-class people didn't do this. They don't grovel in the dirt, especially not in front of a bunch of lower-class people, and especially not a ruler. They tended to act haughty, and Jesus was often getting on their case for acting haughty. But this upper-class man is on his knees in the dirt. He's probably grabbing the feet that the prostitute had kissed. Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The Apostle John says, The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No one is good but God alone. Why do you call me good? Is Jesus asking him, Have you figured out who I really am? Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, do you guys know where most of those come from? Most of them come from the Ten Commandments, okay? These are all commandments that on the surface kind of deal with how we treat people. Which commandments are conspicuously absent? The ones that concern how we treat God. We'll put a paraphrase of the first three. First one is you're not to have any gods before God. Love him the most. Second one, not to worship idols. And the third one, to honor God and his name. Now, you can be sure that this young Jewish man, he knows all ten. He knows all the rules in the Mosaic law. 
Verse 20, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So something's wrong with this picture. This young man has been incredibly good. He doesn't lie. He doesn't steal. He doesn't commit adultery. He's very diligent in obeying the rules as he understands them. And yet he is on his knees imploring Jesus to tell him what he must do beyond this to inherit eternal life. He's in some kind of a crisis to behave like this. He must be desperate. He's kind of cast aside all uh, social convention and what everybody thought was normal. He's deeply troubled. But he senses that something is wrong with his perfect life. Even though he's doing everything he was taught to do, he knows there must be more. Just like when Roberto was at that, in that penthouse at that party, all these successful, wealthy, even famous people and she figured there must be something bigger. There's got to be a higher purpose. And she went to seek for the truth. This fine, young, rich man wants the truth. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's not a typical statement in the New Testament. The Greek word there is agape, for, is translated as loved. Agape, love, is unconditionally Um, unilaterally committed to the best of the person. Jesus has agape love for this young man. And that means Jesus wants to help the young man. But today, we generally read what comes next, and we think that Jesus... Don't look. I saw some of you look. We think that Jesus is deliberately trying to make it difficult for him. You know why we think that? Because we're a lot like this guy. Have you tried to do the right thing most of your life? I'll bet a whole bunch of you have. And you'd say, oh, I'm not perfect, but yeah, I'm better than a lot of people, you'd probably say. And still something is missing. Did you realize that for the, vast, for the majority of people who are churchgoers in this nation, something's missing? So what Jesus tells him to do would also be very difficult for us. Now, so far in this series, perhaps you identified with the leper or the paralytic because God healed you once or you're really experiencing some difficult physical ailment. Or maybe you identified with Peter the fisherman being called by Jesus because you think of yourself more as blue collar and salt of the earth and work with your hands type of thing, an uneducated fisherman like Peter. Some of you may even have identified with the prostitute who Jesus forgave her many sins. But many of us are much more like this man. And that's why we misunderstand what Jesus is doing. Jesus loved this guy, loves this guy. He's really, he really wants to help him, and Jesus knows what he really needs, but we think Jesus is making things difficult for him because we know that it would be difficult for us. And he said to him, you lack one thing, go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, many of you have been in churches for ages, and you're very familiar with this passage, and you've heard people talk about it, and almost always the person talking about it hurries on and says something like, well, Jesus doesn't ask everyone to sell everything and give it away. He just knows that that's what this guy needs. Most of the time, he doesn't ask people to do that, so don't worry. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Actually, you must love him 
more than anyone or anything else. If he's going to be the Lord of your life, your king, he may not ask you to sell it all, but it all belongs to him. If you have not, probably more than once, consciously and intentionally given all of yourself and all that you have and all of your relationships to him, then something's wrong. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This young man is desperate. He wants the truth. Jesus has looked right into his heart and seen that he loves his wealth more than he loves God. Perhaps he trusts his wealth. Perhaps he spends too much time managing it or earning it. Perhaps he worries about losing it. Perhaps he's not generous with it. But it's, just, it's become more important to him than God. It's his idol. And Jesus was probably hoping that the young man would see that Jesus had omitted exactly the three most important of the, first, of the Ten Commandments that dealt with how he treated God and get a clue and say, oh, I guess that's something going on here. See, the rich young ruler, he is violating the very first verse that he would have memorized in his Hebrew Bible. He would have memorized, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And that's exactly what he's not doing. He loves his wealth too much. It's keeping him from having the kind of relationship with God where he knows he's loved, where he knows he's forgiven, where he knows he has eternal life. Instead, he goes away discouraged, sad, disheartened. Jesus loves him unconditionally. Jesus tells him how to have eternal life, how to get right with God. He's got to repent of loving something else more than God. But the rich young ruler loves his wealth too much. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, we would never say what the disciples said here, but in their culture, based on a limited, um, a misunderstanding of a few of the Hebrew scriptures, they had come to believe, like everyone else, that God gave you what you deserved. In John 9... When they see a man born, born blind, they say, well, whose fault is it? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus says, neither. It's so that God can demonstrate his power. And then Jesus heals him. When a tower falls on some people and kills them, everybody assumes they must have been worse sinners. And Jesus says, no, they're not. And when Pilate kills a bunch of people, everyone assumes they must have been worse sinners. And Jesus says, no, they're not. But everybody has to repent. But that's what they believed back then. So here is this rich, successful, morally upright young man in crisis Peter and the others, they want to be him. He didn't, 
he didn't even lord it over them. He was kind of nice. They probably liked him. If anyone was going to make it, he was. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. It's like he's saying, hey, Jesus, you know that thing you asked him to do, leave everything and, and follow you? We, and, you know, so, well, we gave everything up to follow you. Well, we sort of did it. We still have our boats back home waiting for us and our house and our family and so forth. But it's really tough on our family because we're not there to fish and all the relatives have to pitch in. You see that, don't you, Jesus? Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus was not trying to take something away from the rich young ruler. Jesus loves him, and he knows that he will gain much, much more if he follows him. And he'll lose everything if he doesn't. In Luke chapter 9, we'll put it on screen, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man? if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Even if you've rejected Jesus' invitation to you to have a relationship with him, he still loves you. Even if you've been clinging to something you know that you're putting before him, he still loves you. If you, if you care more about your kids than you do about him, new Gallup pulls out, top of the list, what everybody cares about is family. Second place, health. Maybe you care more about your health than you care about him. Or your wealth, or maybe you have some sexual relationship outside of marriage that you can't give up because you care more about that than him, or about your career than about him. See, in Jesus' kingdom, when you follow him, you lose some things that you're going to lose anyway. Those rich people at the penthouse party with, with uh, Roberta, eventually they will die and they cannot take it with them. What use is it if they're rich and famous but miss out on an enthralling, amazing, eternal relationship with God who is wonderful and beautiful? Jesus is not trying to take something from you. He promises that when we follow him, we receive eternal life and a hundred times more than we gave up. With persecution and difficulty because it is the hero's journey. You can talk to Roberta on the patio. She was out there after the last worship service. You can ask her if she regrets leaving the multimillionaire shipping magnate with his millions, leaving him for Jesus. You can ask any of the elders or the staff or any of the people around here who have been following Jesus for a while if they regret what they left behind. You can ask me if I regret leaving behind gambling or chasing women or engineering. My life has taken paths that I, they are so different than what I dreamed of and so much better. Wouldn't trade it, 100 times better. 
Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All that he has. Have you given all of your life and all that you have to God? Have you given all of your money? Have you given all of your time? Have you given all of your family? Have you given all of your relationships? Are you making them all honoring to him? Have you given him your career? How about your retirement? Have you given him your house and your car and your clothes and your food and your standard of living? Have you made him your king whom you serve and obey? Or are you really asking him to serve and obey you? He actually does serve. But it only works when we first submit to him and obey him. And then he serves us and gives us a life beyond what we could have had. He wants to give you a hundred times more. And it will include adversity. It is a heroic adventure. He loves you. That's one of the most beautiful things about him is he loves you and you know you. Today, give him your life and all that you have. Don't walk away like the rich young ruler. He loves you no matter what you've done. It's not too late. Love him back. Don't walk away. In a few minutes, you'll have the opportunity to take communion. If you have never turned your life over to Jesus, then please don't take communion, but if you could make this the day that you do. You may never in your life have actually specifically said to God, I am all yours. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. You can do that today or be prayed for at the prayer stations, anything else that you need. Would the band come on up? And during communion, they'll be playing, and you just take your time, and after you have done whatever business you need to do with God, then you can go and take communion. And communion is not for people who have been doing everything right. Communion is for people who have not been doing everything right. It's about putting your trust and belief in Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and work now powerfully in this place. There are people who need to be healed physically. There are people who need to be healed emotionally. There are people who need to actually feel that you really do love them because they find that hard to believe. There are people who need to finally turn their lives over to you and not walk away. So Holy Spirit, we know that we need your power for all of those things, so we ask you to come and work powerfully now. We also ask that as we take communion, you would take these simple elements of bread and juice and work powerfully in our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, 
visit our website at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.